the hard shoulder. With Nissan. Number one for petrol in Ireland. Number one for electric. Nissan. Innovation that excites. This is News Talk. Welcome back to The Hard Shoulder with me, Mark Hagney, and for Ivan Yates. And uh, every Friday on the programme at this time, they apparently take a look back at the stories that really got them talking over the past seven days. And to do that, we've got three prime gas bags. So there'll be, <laughs> there'll be plenty of talk. How much sense it'll make? Well, you can decide for yourself. Bill Hughes of Mind the Gap Film joins us. Susan Keogh, presenter of News Talk's Weekend Breakfast Show. And Steve Commons, comedian, it says here. Well, that's debatable. We'll see what happens by we, the end of the hour. We will indeed. Uh, before Mark, we go any Mark further, be very afraid. Be very <laughs> afraid. You've got a big hour to fill. Yeah. I'm afraid. <laughs> I feel like leaving. Well, there are several big personalities here and I'm sure they'll... There are. Well, you said you don't know what to expect. So, yeah, I'm yeah. looking okay. forward to this as well. So this is three to one, is it? Pretty right. much, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, just before we go any further, you... Uh, Susan uh, and Steve will join me in wishing Mr. Hughes happy birthday. Ah, happy birthday, birthday Bill. Bill. And it's a significant birthday as it well, was, isn't it? Uh, well, you know, what was it when I get older, losing my hair many years from now, will you still be sending me a Valentine? 64. I was 64 on Wednesday. Well, you still have hair. That's a good start. I, that's why I said the line, dear. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you definitely wouldn't have brought it up if you weren't. If you I wouldn't if I was. Is it real? It's all my own. Unlike certain people. I remember oh, I had a friend who once, he's a hairdresser and somebody, some a posh Dublin smart aleck said to him once, I have to go to London to have my hair cut. There's nobody in Dublin who can cut hair. And my friend, the hairdresser said, and do you go with it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love a good bitchy comment. That's beautiful. Actually, Susan, I'm just going to say, hair loss, and, and I speak with some expertise in this, um, is, is considered to be, um, you know, a male preserve as we get older. What about women? Well, hair loss after you have a baby is a very common thing and it's something that people don't tell you about. But when your baby is about three or four months old, so what it is is you you, you don't lose hair, but you lose hair all of the time. But when you're pregnant, you don't lose hair. Then when you have the baby, that hair that you would have lost during the nine months all comes out in one go. In handfuls. So in handfuls. So you're left with what people call like baby hairs all here. So it's tiny little hairs. That drives people mad because you have to kind of let it grow out again. When you say so, people, you mean the husbands who have to clean it out of the jar. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it is a bit of a problem for women after pregnancy, definitely. But there's lots of women who suffer with alopecia as well, which is a really, really, really but big deal. But there is deal. a female pattern baldness as well, which, you know, men kind of think, this is, oh, this is sent to try. This is, you know, it's like God's punishment for, you know, us being young and beautiful and male <laughs> and all the rest of it. But it, but it is a big deal for women, though. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. And it's kind of one of those things that I guess uh, women don't talk about a whole lot. And also there's probably more ways of hiding it. So like wigs are quite common with women and hair pieces and extensions. So I guess it is a problem that often if a woman has it, they mm. don't actually necessarily have to talk about it. They'll probably find a cosmetic way of covering it up. But absolutely, I, I like the idea of losing my hair. Now I'm grey. Grey hair is a whole other a whole other thing that I have going on that I just wish there was a cure for but uh, yeah no baldness yet anyway some of us would gladly settle for great <laughs> some of us settle for any Steve not a problem for you you not look at like all, a, you, you, you look great like head a hair, Steve. Norse god I, I, I had hair down to basically practically my butt up until about a year and a half ago and then I cut it on really? a whim. Yeah, I had really long hair, really thick hair. It was massive. Was that not a bit odd for a middle-aged man? Well, see, the great thing was, it's doing the job I do. It was like I had so much material about it. Like, I would walk out and I'd, first thing I would do is go to any bald men in the room. I just want to say I'm incredibly sorry. And I'd just 
flick it around beautifully for Did a you while. pick up loads of extra work on Vikings and things like that? Well, weirdly enough, I was offered four months extra work on the movie King Arthur. But I couldn't, I couldn't avail of it. I couldn't just because I was yummy. That was a lucky escape. Well. Have you seen the movie? No, but I did hear it was a box office <laughs> flop. I only read that recently, so maybe it would have been better if I'd been in it <clears> with my great big thick locks. Right. Listen, uh, we, the one thing we will not discuss uh, today is the B word. Um, we've had enough of that, and there'll be a vote in Westminster tomorrow morning, and we'll know what the result will be, or maybe we won't. Anyway, whatever. No B word. What I do want to talk about is Extinction Rebellion, and. Um, I'm just. I'm, we're, we're, we are all of a certain age. We are all of a generation who my 15-year-olds, teenage kids, are blaming for the fact that the world is poisoning itself and dying and that they're going to have no future. Is that a fair accusation, Bill? Do you respond to that? Do you kind of feel any guilt about it? Um, I don't feel guilt about it, but I wholeheartedly agree with them. I think we have messed it up. And I think we've messed it up through a combination of laziness, avarice, uh, our own, our inability to assess the consequences of what it was like to suddenly become all consumer. Everybody became a consumer. And to be a consumer didn't, you know, it, it had to have a, a bill. A bill was going to arrive on the mat one day and it wasn't going to be for money. It was actually going to be, listen, lads, you've messed up the planet. But if you're making reference to the Extinction Rebellion messing around during the week in London when those two idiots got up on a train mm. uh, and tried to stop it from taking people to work. I thought Extinction Rebellion has just shot itself in the foot. I was going to say, uh, Susan, because you watch this from a news point mm. of view apart from anything else, professionally, I when I saw it, I went, really, really bad strategic move. Yeah, absolutely. These are the people that, who are using mm. the most efficient form of transport, i.e. public transport, well, it's, in thousands, it's, and you're screwing them up. You need these people on your side. Yeah, you don't need to be annoying them. It's completely bewildering, and I think that was the way most people watched it. I mean, obviously, to see the video that went viral of the guy that was kicked, it's always really distressing, I think, to watch. I always try and avoid watching those things in their entirety. But apart from that, it was it was head-scratching as to why Extinction Rebellion would target one of the most environmentally friendly transport systems that is obviously ensuring that people come out of their cars and go on that train instead. It just made absolutely no sense. But I guess when you look into the story, you realise that this wasn't a decision a decision made by Extinction Rebellion as a whole. They're a very fractured group, it seems, and there was a small amount of people who decided that this was going to be a good idea, but the vast majority of the people who are involved in that organisation would totally disagree with it. There was some really good quotes out of it. Bill alludes to one there where people were shouting at them, I have kids to feed, I need to go to work. And uh, another one where the guy was like, I can assure you that the the most wealthy and highest paid CEOs of the, the industries that are doing the most damage don't get the seven o'clock train from whatever this town was called you know I mean they were just kind of really putting their emphasis and targeting the wrong place mm. like completely the wrong place uh, Steve the I, I saw it I thought oh it's really really stupid but then the reaction of the commuters was way over the top I mean to pull people off the top of a tube you know, I mean the drop is mm. must be 10, 11, 12 feet in all money so just yeah. the fall alone could do you serious damage, if not fatal damage. And then to, to, to give them a good kicking when, when they had them down, that was kind of mob rule at its worst, wasn't it? Have you? It's, it absolutely was. But have you? First of all, I lived in London for years. And uh, I do say this, but the, the, the average Londoner has no problem 
stepping up, if you know what I mean, and putting himself forward. But if you if you're experiencing, you can imagine the massive frustration. Like I, your average commute is a nightmare, regardless. I'm not in any way, by the way, saying drag people off trains. I'm also saying don't get up on them in the first place. But you're you know yourself. Like suppose five trains are leaving an hour in that station. And you're there, you want to get on this train, which is your normal train, and then you can, this train is now stopped, and now loads of other people are coming. You saw how busy the platforms were there. I mean, what they did was so stupid. I can understand the frustration that would pull someone to drag some, and especially how you might view people like that. There was video going around there during the week um, of the Extinction Rebellion people, but there was this, just this white guy with dreadlocks, no shirt on, dancing around in front of police barriers, just being a complete knob and you're just looking at it going it's someone like him is the worst person to be any sort of front person mm. you know, yeah for but this. the way they've coordinated themselves to wear nice tweed jackets like the guy the week before last who got on the plane and decided that he was going to make his statement and stop the plane leaving, leaving London City Airport and uh, we're all going to look uh, dressed like middle class gents it's a bit Monty Python-esque lads you know so I I totally agree with the point of Extinction Rebellion Mm. I just don't think they're going about it the right way But what is the right way to go about it and I suppose this is where I kind of Block the M25 that was my thought Yeah but this is where this is kind of it's one of those things it's a bit of a it's the way like Twitter has taken away all nuance you know when we try and kind of have it's either you're for Extinction Rebellion or you're not for it but where's the middle ground Mm. We'll we'll take a break we'll be back Okay welcome back we're on the hard shoulder and it is the final furlong and I'm joined by Bill Hughes of Mind the Gap Films, Susan Kyo, presenter with uh, News Talks Weekend Breakfast Show and Steve Cummins, uh, comedian. Okay, uh, I'm going to start with you, Susan. Um, maths, how do you feel about maths? Are you any good at it? <laughs> Absolutely useless, that maths. Really, really bad. It was the subject I struggled really badly with in school and for junior cert, did uh, honours maths spent an awful lot of my time trying to make sure that I wouldn't fail it uh, didn't fail it but I think I got a D or maybe a C in it and then decided for leaving cert to go down to pass because I just knew I was going to spend 80% of my time trying to pass honours maths I think maths can be really really difficult it depends obviously on what way your brain works but I'm really really bad at maths Okay that's really the academic theoretical maths what about practical everyday stuff I mean you, worse. You, you, worse you, than you go out into the world you get a life you have a house you have a household a budget all that sort of stuff to run Really, really, really bad. Like, I can't even stress that enough. And I've often said in school... You don't do the books in your house, then? I don't do the books in my house. And I don't even do the second class maths homework and I'm pretty bad at maths <laughs> Second class is where you draw the line. <laughs> second class, First class seven is actually times tables. Okay. Um, so I find all of that really difficult. I find uh, percentages really difficult. So when anybody's talking to me about money, when people are, if I'm ever trying to set a fee for anything, if I'm trying to, I find all of that really, really difficult. It's like that little part of your brain that does all of that is... Um, just gone on on my brain. I don't have it. So if we're, if we're booking you for a corporate, basically we just throw any number at you, you'll accept it. Just because you've no idea what you're doing. Great. That's three six figures. I was I was terrible at maths. Weird enough, I had just last Saturday. I was back in Limerick for my thirty year school reunion, and a lovely human being, Dan O'Sullivan, who desperately tried to teach me pass maths <laughs> for six years. He was there. And it was lovely to see him. He was a lovely man. And probably an excellent teacher, but he just couldn't teach me. I got an NG in past maths in my pre-leaving cert maths and I got I was doing honours in every other subject uh, maths just could not I couldn't grasp it couldn't look at it and weirdly enough just when you were saying about the homework there Susan is that I've but just being at home with the kids I've learned more about maths from doing now homework than you now. Did, yeah. now nothing nothing beyond mm. primary school maths 
but it's still great. So now my, I have to admit, my tables I'm pretty good at. Do you know what I mean? From repeatedly going over them with kids. But yeah, I was always terrible at maths. This big maths year or whatever it is. It's maths week. Maths week, yeah. maths week, sorry. See, that's how bad I am at maths. I thought it was a year. <laughs> this is the 14th year of it. But, it's, but, it's, but I just loved the idea. I've, I've, I wasn't aware of its existence. And suddenly I'm looking at it going, this is just like, you know, Disneyland for nerds, really. And it's mm. lovely. And I mean nerds in a good way, you know. Well, I now, Bill, I, I, now, I want to ask you a question about this, right? Because I, I know some, we have known each other a very long time, mm. and I know of your background, and your family were in business yeah. in Ethai. In fact, they owned half of it. <laughs> no. <laughs> just, just a nice shop on the, on the main street that reared 13 kids. Absolutely. Yeah. And you all would have worked in the shop, because I know we've talked yeah. about that before, and every one of you would have had to be able to do... Right prices. Uh, and songs, all that, sort of all that stuff, kind yeah. of stuff, and you would have been dealing with cash uh, from a very early age. But that, it? to me, is maths. That's what addition, subtraction, multiplication and division. That's maths. Percentages, that's maths. Mm. These days, it's not maths. It's the cosine of something that's going to carry me to Mars or it's the creation of an algorithm that's going to create a whole new internet sensation or whatever. That's what maths has become. Whereas I'd love to divide it into sums and maths. And I believe, I'm old-fashioned, I believe in sums. (coughs) Maths is for those who understand theoretical stuff. Yeah, and and the project maths that you're, project maths is Mm. what you're referring to there, Bill, where maths has become almost a language and in a way, Mm. um, I feel sorry for, you know, there's people out there who are really good at maths and they may not necessarily be really good at languages and this kind of hams, it means that they can't get in on maths anymore because, like you say, it can be a really, really, really long sentence that you actually have to understand before you get to it is the a maths different bit of it. it is a different language yeah. and that means then people who could be really good at maths are actually challenged by the language that's involved in maths they might be able to do the sum if the sum was presented in a straightforward way but they can't get over the language barrier of it I did honours maths in my intercert and scraped it and then switched to pass maths from my that's leaving cert mm. and I couldn't follow the teacher I really couldn't but a guy in my class in boarding school took me aside the night before the pass paper and gave me a grind on this will come up, this will come up and this is how you do it. And I got an A. I got an A in pass maths in the leaving. And it was because somebody took the time on a one-on-one to say it's this and completely demystified it. Of course, I walked out of that exam and forgot everything mm. that I had written. Mm. And so, But as I say, sums is one thing. This whole thing of maths. I know of somebody who actually takes maths books on holiday to read them like I would read a novel. They okay. read maths <laughs> books because be they love them. You're not going to mention their name, obviously, but please no. tell me who that, that, that person is because I want to avoid them. <laughs> yeah, that's not the person you want to hang out at the, be- at no, the pool bar. No, brilliant. It's genius. It my, is genius. My... People who love it, love it. All right, just very quickly before we go to a break. Um, sub- subject that you really hated in school. Hate it. Really? You want to know? Go on. Irish. Steve. Uh, maths was mine. Oh, I hated maths, but I also hated French. I had a teacher and she was really strict. Did you hate French or did you hate her? Her really strict French woman. Like she was just an absolute In other words, she took no guff from you. We're going to take news and we'll be okay, back Okay, thank you that. for that, guys. Back here on The Hard Shoulder, we're in the final furlong. We've got Steve Cummins, uh, we've got Susan Kyo and Bill Hughes with us. Uh, just by the way, uh, just to, to show that um, uh, we're all equal here, um, I'm completely innumerate. Um, I haven't been diagnosed, but I have a child who is dyspraxic and has incredible problems with it. And I would be the same. Uh, e- even with the calculator, I have to go back and check it. Ooh. That bad. 
I didn't think uh, that's the that way, way I am, and tips, I didn't think it? there was other people like that. Why you don't like leave that. tips? How <laughs> 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 oh, oh, work out ten percent? You, you heard it here first, folks. Mark Hagney doesn't tip. Bill Hughes is going to get a tip of my boot very shortly. <laughs> um, right, uh, according to research, um, by the way, uh, according to research, uh, new parents. This is quite extraordinary, actually. I, I had to look at this and read it. Am I reading this properly? New parents will have more than 2,500 arguments in the first year of their baby's life. A study of 2,000 mums and dads found that they will have up to seven arguments a day about how to look after the baby and who's doing the most around the house. And here's the one that really got me, which is that, uh, unfortunately, 20% of couples split up for good within 12 months of having their first child. Susan, are you surprised by that? Surprised by the third point, but not a bit surprised by the other two bits. And I can't believe you're surprised by that as well. I mean, anybody who has had children knows that it's... That year is like such a challenge. You don't have seven arguments a day. It's the one argument. It just goes on all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so you just never bother making up. That's what you're saying. There's nothing you will not argue about when you're tired, when you're stressed, when you're worried about a baby, when you bring a baby back to the house and you're like, neither of us know how to keep this baby alive. There is nothing you won't argue about. So I wasn't a bit surprised if you were to count those arguments. There's an awful lot in the first year. Yeah, you're stressed out of your mind. And when you're stressed and in anything, the, if you're stressed here at lack work, of sleep. you're going to snap at somebody and you're exhausted. It's the lack of sleep. Like you'll fight with anyone when you're tired. We well, all know that. You'll cry at anything when you're tired. If you ha- don't have a good night's sleep, like you're goosed in all aspects, I think. And you just don't sleep, obviously, when you have a newborn baby or even a small baby at home. So the rows are huge. A baby can cry. A baby's cry can go to 110 decibels. Uh, a pneumatic drill is 108 decibels. <laughs> so you imagine a builder at the end of your bed you know, drilling away. Like, it's incredible. The 20%, I did really, I, that was this statistic that hit me as well, the 20% of couples split up permanently within a year of having a baby. I think there's almost an undiagnosed, well, somewhat diagnosed, I think that very, very strong postnatal depression can be ignored a lot of the time where people just don't realise it. Just a guy I know, himself and his wife, they had their baby and for two years they fought really, really badly and then they split up. And it was only when he was talking to me about a year later and he started describing how his wife was. Mm. And it was classic symptoms of postnatal depression that no one had noticed. Mm. And this poor, and by after two years, and I said, look, talk to her and just tell her this could be it and maybe blah, blah, blah. But he said, the damage is done now. They've both, you know, they've both fallen apart. So are fallen so far apart from each other. So I think, well, yes, you can have the lazy, one, one partner is really, really lazy and the other partner isn't. And that can lead to... Absolutely. After a year, you could definitely want to kick them out. But I think postnatal depression could be a big part of it. Bill, I, I'm, I'm not going to be PC here. But what do gay couples argue about? <laughs> well, the we can... Control in your uh, no, uh, the thing is, right... Well, I presume finance, which is, a, which is a, you know, an overarching stress for all of us. No. When you don't I, have well, of course, kids, when your family owns exactly. half of a toy, then you don't have to worry about I money. I, that's... that's such listen like you you deserve Speechless. the toe in the hole I'm going to give you later as well but you're all 14 so. if you went to, to boarding school we didn't. small business no in we didn't we didn't didn't five of us went to boarding school um, but everybody had the option everybody had the option because my parents fully believed in education and they believed in education because they'd both left school early themselves and they put all of their efforts into looking after us the greatest gift you can give your child but when they had children (laughs) the thing was they they didn't know when to stop and there were 13 of us and so by the time it reached me and then seven came after me you know 
you, the older ones were looking after the younger ones and my parents were just getting on with their daily lives. My mother was running the business. My father was running the house. And so in our... There wasn't time for a child to be mm. dominating. And yes, a child screamed. If the child screamed, the child was put up in my mother's room. Or and the was door closed, picked was it up and closed. Yeah, and, okay. le- you know, left the... It was a different way, a different time. But gay couples um, find ways to try not to have the petty arguments that we observe. Like the laugh that people had when when gays were asking for marriage and say, why would you want to ruin a good relationship by getting married? (laughs) That's what a lot of the straights said. But now that I'm married, I've never been happier. Well, you're married to a lovely man. Ah, that's true. And we all <laughs> met him. How many years ago was it? Oh, actually, I'll tell you what. 22. No, it's, yeah, it would be because Jared is, was four or five at the time. Yeah. And we, we actually met him for the first time in Barcelona with you. Yeah. And we went, oh God, he's a keeper. Yeah. And you did. Fair play. It's the first time you've ever taken any advice from me. <laughs> but uh, all jokes aside, um, in, in terms of, again, look, I'm obviously I'm, I'm married twice, uh, luckily to two wonderful women. Um, but the same th- stress points are... are um, Babies, new babies. Well, babies, I didn't have that in the first one. We're spared uh, first, that. Uh, um, mm-hmm. But yeah, <clears throat> babies. And and we bring with us how I was reared, how mm. I, my mother and, and, you know, that background and environment informs me about how I think the child should be brought yeah. up. And Audrey has, uh, you know, her, brings her background. Are you bad cop or good cop? It dep- I would probably be, don't put up with that nonsense from them. Don't let them away with that because it's going to come back and bite you in the okay. neck. And you, we had this big, I remember we had a blazing row over it one day and I said, you're spoiling them. She said, I'm not spoiling them. I'm indulging them. I said, explain the difference. Spoiling them is giving them what they want when they want it. Indulging them is giving them what they want when I want it. <laughs> you know, that's actually very well put. I like that. that. It's, it, yeah, it's, but I it's, isn't probably, it the finest hair splitting you ever heard? Yeah. It is, but it is a distinction. There is a difference. Probably it's a great when, t-shirt. It's a you, great t-shirt. Yeah, it's a good t-shirt. Exactly. There's the business. When you get over the early baby days and one of the things that really spoke to me in, in that article was where people argue over who got the most sleep. So like you never want to find yourself in the situation where you're like, I'm more tired than you. I'm tired. I'm more tired. No, I'm actually more tired than you. Have you had that argument? Absolutely. Like people have that argument when they have a small baby in the house. Like, and it's, you know, and then, and then you kind of get to the point where you're coming back to work and then the child is sick and then the argument suddenly becomes, how busy are you today? What have you on in work? Well, I'm actually busier. I have this on in work. Well, I'm actually interviewing this person in work. So like, who's going to not go to work that day? It sounds like you did have a good, uh, but you had a good open communication. And a friend of mine always says, the time that you need to worry is when you don't care enough to actually have the argument. So if you're mm. still arguing, you still care enough to have the argument. And when you really need to kind of check whether everything's OK is when you've actually thrown in the towel and you're just kind of coexisting and not bothering to even have the row. OK, just very quickly before we go, um, what about finance? Does Would financial stress cause difficulties in your relationship, Bill? It, it could do, but we talk everything out. Mm. Just talk everything out. Never stop talking. That's what I, I believe if you, it's, it's when people start to hold their, their, their powder, you know, keep dry, their powder yeah. dry. And What's wrong that, with you? Nothing. Nothing. Exactly. That builds okay? up Fine. resentments. And you can never let up resentments if you, if you constantly talk everything through. And every time there is a, the sign of a disagreement on the horizon, if you spot it mm. like a really good scout, then you so head there. it off at the past. Head it mm. off at the past. Mm. I remember having, there was two kids in a particular children's home I worked in in London and there were two kids and one, the father was a real martinet and physical and just a real, he was ex-military and he was just a horrible, horrible, angry man with his son. Mm. This other kid, he uh, lived with his mum and she was beyond indulgent. Like she just, 
she, he was her sun, moon and stars and she, he could do no wrong. Both kids ended up in care. Both of them exhibited the exact same behaviours. Is in, you know, you would think that, you know, the kid who was really heavily put upon would have different behaviours to this other lad. Just in these cases, it didn't. Mm. So it's really, it's almost like extremes of parenting in any way, either mm. way, is going to mess up your child. So we well, mind like, you, in fairness, your children can drive you to those extremes. Well, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Because but, they don't know any better. They don't. But then it's, there is those moments where, you know, I find that with my wife and I, like, she's very, very, like, right on. She works in children's rights and she's very kind of decent and you know, kind and whatever. And then I'm kind of rude and lewd and comedian and what have you. And it make, it works. It become this nice mixture where the kids get this really beautiful moral compass from my wife, but they also get a certain irreverence and a break in the rules from me. And I, I think we're, it seems to be so far anyway, we've made two boys who happen to be kind of nicely right in the middle doing very well. But uh, yeah, if you, if, uh, if you allow a rouse to... A, to like as Bill was saying, if you ignore your rose, or the the one thing I always look at, when you see a couple and they're dating, and you, they've been dating for two years, and they go, "We never fight, we've never fought, not even once." You go, "You are no way staying together." That's like, a red flag in itself. It is a huge red flag. You have to be able. Mm. It means you're, you're you're not being honest with each other. You okay. have to row. Uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the poppy and how people feel about it. Uh, welcome back. It is uh, the hard shoulder, and we're on the final furlong. I'm joined by uh, Bill Hughes, Steve Collins. And Susan Kyo. Now, I mentioned before the break, we're going to talk about the poppy. And this is one of these things that gets people really agitated. And it, it, it to me, at any rate, as somebody who was a pro-Irish man, but not particularly a Republican and not a particularly green nationalist either, um, I, I, I'm always amazed at how incensed people get about this and about the fact that some people feel, for very good reasons, that they would like to wear a poppy to remember somebody. And to remember, and by definition, because it's about the war, they're remembering somebody who has gone or who has made the ultimate sacrifice. And I don't understand why people take so, so much offence. Bill, do you? I don't understand it. I live across the road from the Memorial Gardens in Island Bridge. And it's a great place to go for a walk. And you see the memorials to the soldiers who fell in the First World War, in the Second World War, and the Irishmen who gave their lives for all of our freedoms. Of them. For all of our freedoms. And how you can't commemorate them by the simple... It's people who uh, want to be uh, incensed in some mm. way by uh, a thing that they see representing the imperial jackboot, as they want to refer to it. The 800 years that we suffered. If I hear that one more time, like, move on, lads. Move on. We always have to keep moving on or mm. we're never going to mm. be. So, going across to Memorial Gardens and going up to those beautiful monuments and looking at them and remembering who those people are. And there are loads of reeds of poppies around them year round. Okay. And I just look at them and I go, yeah. I'll, I'll nail my colours to the mast on, on this one. Um, my grandfather wore one. Um, he and his brothers were Redmondites and they were proud nationalists from North Cork, uh, uh, big farmer sons. Um, and they believed that by going and uh, fighting for the British in the Great War, they would get some form of home rule. That's what they thought. Mm. And they thought it was their nationalist duty as, as proud Irishmen to do this. Of course, they were over there. 1916 happens they come back after the war and they're treated like pariahs. Now, as it happens, my grandfather was a doctor, right? So he wasn't out there killing anybody on behalf of anybody. He was saving lives. But he wore that all his life. And I asked him about it and he explained it to me and it made perfect sense. And we were doing it in school and history. And I thought, OK, 
so as I was growing up, it wasn't that much of an issue. But since the North and since the Good Friday Agreement, it seems to have become even more of an anathema for people. Susan, can you explain that to me? Yeah, and I think every year this this debate happens and every is year... Is it us it up? Is, are we prolonging no, it? No, I don't necessarily worse? think so. I mean, it's obviously talked about on radio programmes because it's one of these stories that plays out an awful lot online and you'll see it in the papers. But people... I just, I just will never, ever agree with a situation where, sees, where you'll see people being completely vilified and pulled apart online for doing something or not doing something. So every year there'll be a story about someone who refuses to wear the poppy or somebody who's wearing the poppy and there's somebody who thinks that they shouldn't. And as Bill said there, you know, the pe- what people were fighting for in the two wars was the freedom. And the fact that we won't respect somebody's freedom to make a decision and wear the poppy whether they want to wear it or whether they don't want to wear it completely goes against the, what the whole thing is about. I just think it's absolutely madness that you would kind of enforce that view on somebody. If you want to wear a poppy, wear a poppy. If you don't want to wear a poppy, don't wear a poppy. And that should be it. It's such a prescriptive type of thing. There's stories about people who've worn the poppy on the wrong side. People, You're supposed to wear it over your heart, by the way, just so it's... You, just so, so if you're you going to wear, gonna wear, wear it, it. <laughs> wear it over your heart so wear you're wherever. holding the people in your heart. So it's, it's actually one of these really, really prescriptive things... And because it's quite visual, you end up in a situation where you have people been absolutely torn apart for the decision that they've made. And that's just always wrong in my book. Steve, um, grew up in Limerick. Yes. Uh, so I don't know whether the poppy loomed large in Limerick or not, but you also spent a long time in the UK as well. So you would you would be able to see, I presume, uh, the debate from both sides. Well, I'm very much like you. I'm Irish, but not exactly nationalistic in anything else. I couldn't care less if you're wearing a geranium on your head. Like, I really, I don't see, I think it is absolutely a personal choice if you mm. want to wear it. Maybe, maybe this is big poppy like Big Pharma is just keeping it in our, in our hearts so that we... That that so we buy more poppies. Somebody is making money mm. out of buying these poppies in a weird way. Do you know what I mean? And what, do you know what's odd? When I read through the article, now maybe it's just because I'm looking at things with a stupid skewed eye a lot of the time, but when it said we're, the poppy now has become more inclusive, it's not just for, you know, to commemorate people who died in the, in the Great Wars, as they call them, but also... The victims of victims violence. Victims yeah. of violence and survivors and everything else. And a tiny part of me was going, is that so that you can keep poppy day going you know that to keep the interest alive you think that, that's their get out of jail card yeah almost in a way yeah and kind of going you know let's 17, broaden it out a yeah, little bit exactly. or it might it's like, like any business okay uh, let's move on um, I, the last uh, subject was, uh, was, was, was morbid I suppose in terms of uh, what it is people were wearing a poppy for which is to commemorate the loss of millions and millions and millions of lives but of course inevitably we're all going to die uh, and I don't know whether any of you have actually ever given any thought to what happens when you die or have you even thought about well okay here's what I want and by the way I want to bring this with me in my coffin Bill? I want to be cremated Okay I want to be cremated even though people say witches don't burn I will burn <laughs> and I'll burn very quickly <laughs> Sorry we'll, but we'll drown you a couple no, of times no, no, first to make they, sure They, they burn they don't drown There, there you go But uh, no I think that's all nonsense Do you want really anything done do. with your ashes specifically? Because yeah. I'm the same as Bill now I do I, don't, I definitely want to be cremated and I know this is kind of a difficult conversation to have sometimes with family members so I'll say it on the record now on the radio I definitely want to be cremated I don't buy into any of this bringing clown shoes torch broomstick whatever you're having yourself into a coffin you're dead you're dead but have you thought about where you want your ashes to go yeah I have actually and funnily enough I already mentioned the place the memorial gardens Ah. I would like some of my ashes mixed into the rose bushes 
in the beautiful memorial gardens that they're just there because uh, ashes apparently are really good fertiliser for uh, roses. Uh, I'd like some of them there and then the other places I want my ashes, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Those of us who know you think you'd make very good fertiliser. Oh, yeah. <laughs> very good. Well, Mark <laughs> That was I've, said with oh. such sweetness. Part of this story from during the week was um, Mr. Motorvader, yeah. you know, oh, the yeah. TV yeah. personality. He decided that he wanted his ashes to be mixed with fish paste and put into sandwiches to be eaten by guests at his funeral. Well, what the three guests who remember him from the 80s are going yeah. to have to Weirdly enough, just to keep the morbid theme going, I also uh, want to be cremated, and I've said it uh, quite clearly, but I have a little uh, quirk which I eventually got my wife to believe after about a year of me reminding her over and over again. And I have my oldest friend, he's also going, okay, if she doesn't do it, I'll make sure you do it. Mm. But at my memorial, whatever the few, because it's going to be cremation, but whatever the, the service, I want an ice cream van there. And everybody Good gets man, a, that's everybody brilliant. that everybody gets an ice cream cone. Like everybody gets a ninety nine. Because I just like the idea of people standing around eating because they're that delicious. Is so random. But isn't it though? But I just thought it'd be such a lovely thing. That's for so people. Irish as well. There's no other race on the planet that would actually come up with an idea like that. What? And we do, in fairness, we do <laughs> no, do so, yeah. we do death very well as as, yeah. a, as a people, don't we? Well, did you see that fabulous guy there during the week? Oh, it was oh, fantastic. The, this was absolutely was brilliant. Amazing. The video of the guy from Kilkenny um, who recorded his voice. Did you see it, Bill? Yeah, and, put and it they, in play, the, they yeah. played out the voice of him trying to get out of the coffin. Now, I mean, I didn't get to read the story in full, but I really hope that everyone knew it was going to happen because I actually think it would kind of be quite frightening No, I think a lot were... of people didn't. I think it was one of those where the media family knew, but I think it was a fabulous idea. The laughter... They would have had to have known. So who organised it? Well, no, but I mean, I'm not saying, but I'm saying people knew, but yeah. not the entire... You know, can, can, I Bradley Bradley can I be a killjoy? Can I be a killjoy and say I didn't like it at well, all? What did you not like about it? I, nothing. I, I just I didn't like any of it. <laughs> it was I, his body. He I, I, I know. I would have thought that would have appealed to your sense. No, of not at all. And do you think it was unfair on the family members? Or what I'm, no, I'm not going to say well because people could be listening who yeah. are the family members mm. and I don't want to upset anybody. Yeah. All I'm saying is I thought it was in very poor taste. Okay. Well, how about how about this for uh, for poor taste? Um, uh, according to. Um, the co-op in the UK, they said uh, some of the more unusual items that people have asked to put in their coffins include scones, toffee crisps, a broomstick, a dustpan and a brush, playing cards, a wedding dress, a Russian doll. Now, apparently placing items in coffins is a, is a, is a very ancient tradition. So the broomstick is yours, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine. I was thinking. The, the dustpan and brush was the saddest one there because you're thinking, yeah. oh, she loved that dustpan and brush. No, she didn't. No, she, didn't. <laughs> she just had to clean every day of her you life. You just loved when she, she used that dustpan exactly. and brush. Yeah. What, what, okay, what, what about. Um, no, look, I, I would imagine that we're all going to be cremated, right? Please, God, we, it won't happen for a very long time, but sp- space will be at a, at a premium. And by the way, the cost of a grave in, yeah, in 10 or 15 years' time, I'll probably get a, a house in Dublin cheaper. Mm. And, you know, well, easy on now, Mark. <laughs> but but so in other words, we we will all be cremated. But I mean, if if you were going, if you weren't going to be cremated, you were going in a coffin. Is there any sentimental keepsake or something that you would like to bring with you? No, nothing. Just, I'm the same. I have absolutely nothing. I just, I can't even go there in my head because I just think when you die, you die. So you're asking me to pick an you item. You don't believe in heaven. Where will I be using this item? You don't believe in heaven. No, I just no. think when you die, no. you die. No. That's it. No, Get thee hence, heathen. <laughs> when you're dead you're dead and that is it so I can't envisage what item I would need because I'm gone hmm. I don't know where I am so I don't know what I would need I'm going Egyptian I want my family I want everything buried in with me do you want to take the family retainers <laughs> as well dogs, cats the whole everything the whole night. do you know what was quite was quite odd and it shows the, the genuine weird paranoia of certain people 
a lot of people and there was apparently just if you look at that article uh, wanted to be buried with mm. a bell a mobile phone yeah. or some, a torch a torch some way of let, yeah torch yeah great so I can I see my slow decay <laughs> just in case they made a mistake <laughs> I think they all read the house, fall yeah. of the house if, of Usher yeah. didn't they but if, you, if you can get a signal six foot underground I want to be on whatever net, your network you're on I know somebody who wanted um, somebody very close to me actually who wanted their credit cards because they were the first person in their family ever to put themselves in a financial position to have their own bank account. Oh, that was a huge deal for them, yeah. It was that's a sweet. huge deal. And you kind of think, you know, when you say it to people, they go, ooh, that's a bit mercenary and all the rest of it. But it was, it was the achievement of it. It's the significance of it. Of it mm-hmm. of and nobody knew by the person who actually put it into the coffin and them. Although I'd just say, when my mum died, I, uh, uh, just at, at, the, at the, the, the wake or the removal, and I don't know why it occurred to me, but she always smoked. She smoked cigarettes all her life. Uh, but she also always had a holder, one of these long oh, holders. Oh yeah. Ah. And whatever made me do it, but it was just me and her in the in the in the Undertaker's. And I just took one of her cigarettes and her holder, and I just slipped it into her hands, uh, just under the thing. Because believe me, if there is a heaven, which I don't believe as well, by the way, so I'm also a heathen. Uh, she would certainly want to smoke as soon as she got there. Mm. So it was one of those <laughs> things. So I can see the thought behind people wanting to stick stuff in. But not nothing for me. If I, as I said, if I can't do the Egyptian thing, and she I'm didn't go up and she went down. She at least she got a light. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, you know, I, I, um, this is the quickest hour I've ever spent in my life, there you go. and that is a tribute to the convivial uh, uh, company that I've been keeping, which is Steve Cummins, Bill Hughes, and Susan Kill. Thank you very much for joining us on the Hard Shoulder in the final furlong this evening. That's our lot from the Hard Shoulder for this week. My thanks to the production team: Mark's, uh, Mark Simpson, uh, Ashley Moore, Dan Flanagan, Roshan Davis, and Alex Russo. Off the ball is up next. I will be back on Monday. Have a great weekend. Come on, Ireland. The Hard Shoulder With Nissan Number one for petrol in Ireland Number one for electric Nissan Innovation that excites This This. is News Talk